So this is the, this is the sermon that didn't want to happen. Um, I thought a while about what sermon to preach and then I thought a while longer because actually I was planning to come today and um, preach out of 2 Corinthians 4. Um, and then when I offered that up to, to Dorothy to put in the bulletin, she says, you know. <laughs> um, that's great. So, <laughs> uh, so I, I stopped and I, I started again and I went back and prayed and thought about what, what, what should I preach from. And, um, you know, my first, my first instinct was to go, okay, what's very different than that passage? <laughs> but, um, and, and I listened to last week's sermon, and just as, as he was saying that he kept being drawn back to particular types of passages, I kept being drawn back to particular types of passages. Um, and uh, so there's going to be some overlap today, um, but I really believe that for some reason, maybe I need to hear it, maybe y'all need to hear it, um, maybe I just need to wrestle with it this week, uh, but this is where the Spirit has brought us. So um, if you are able, would you uh, please stand for the reading of the word of the Lord? This is First Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Um, the grass withers and the flower fades. With this, the word of the Lord stands forever. If you would pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that um, it is powerful, and that you have promised us that your word goes out and does not return void, that by the work of the Spirit in us, um, we are grown by it. We are drawn to you by it. We find our hearts and lives changed by it, and I pray, Lord, that this morning this would be true. That anything that you would have us here would be heard and um, anything else would fall away. Amen.
Please be seated. So this is kind of a weird thing to be thinking about. It's very dated at this point. Um, but I was, watching, I was watching some fluff piece on FedEx, um, and the movie Castaway came up um, because it ended up being like this big commercial for FedEx. And you know, like it or love it, like I like Castaway. I think it's really great and the symbolism is good. Um, my wife can't stand it. I think it's the talking to the beach ball or the t volleyball that, that ruins it for her. But the thing that, that does kind of get to me, even though it's the heart of symbolism, is this, this guy is shipwrecked or plane crashes on this island. And he's, he's a FedEx delivery man, right? And he's got all these boxes and he's opening them and hoping there's good stuff in it. But throughout the whole movie, and this is where like, I think FedEx signed off on it, <laughs> there was this one package that he just wouldn't open. Because for him, the idea of delivering this package somehow would make this whole experience worthwhile. And like, I get the, that desire, <laughs> but I'm like, what's in the package, man? Like, what if it's a satellite phone? Um, <laughs> like, it seems like this little thing uh, that this little hope that he has that doesn't really hold up to the rest of it. And what I want to ask you this morning in light of this is, like, what do you hold out hope for? What are maybe those little things that get you through one moment to the next? I don't know. Like, I think of Saturday football in the fall as a teacher. Being like, I can get through today because my team's playing on, so we won't talk about my team right here in this place. Um, but those little things, it's like, ah, oh, man, today's horrible, but, but I don't know, maybe there's a, that new Marvel movie is coming out next month, and if I can just make it that far, or that, that little hour with the new Zelda game before I go to bed that gets me through whatever I'm going through. Or maybe it's impossible things that get us going, right? Those things that are so far off in the distance that we can barely touch them. Things like, I don't know, uh, finishing our, our studies and graduating. Maybe it's getting that job that you'd hope for, that promotion. Maybe it's, you know, falling in love and getting married. These things that we, we dangle in front of ourselves as a carrot to kind of get through what we're going through right now. This is our worldly understanding of hope, right? That's what hope is. We use these things, these joys, to hide our faces from the horrors that this world has for us. Because the world is bitter and harsh and cruel. So we use these things to keep our eyes up and make it through the day. Because we know somewhere deep inside that joy and sorrow are incompatible, right? They don't share the same space. And so if we look hard enough at those happy things or those things that we long for or our silly FedEx package, maybe sorrow will lose and we can get on with it. But I think we all know, I'm making kind of a big 
risk a wager here that if you're sitting here today, you feel this, that those hopes don't do it. The obtainable hopes aren't big enough and the big enough hopes aren't obtainable. And sorrow eventually pushes out joy. Hi, I'm Evan, I'm a bummer. (laughs) (laughs) But I think we know this. I think we, we feel this. We fight against it. But we all know that there's so much sorrow and pain and grief out there and it feels like it always wins. And so hope is this ethereal thing that we talk about so that we can just keep on. Peter wrote this letter to offer hope. But a new kind of hope, a different kind of hope, a radical kind of hope. One that actually turns the table on this relationship between joy and sadness. One that that actually doesn't agree with that statement that they can't live together in the same space. that offers a hope that isn't destroyed by sorrow, but actually coexists with grief and is emboldened by it. We see this, kind of the heart of what he's offering. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. This is Paul's definition of hope. Actually, the English is a little bit sloppy. We've got this present tense, past tense that doesn't, isn't there in the Greek. Both of the verbs are present tense. We get the past tense from the participle, but that's the whole thing. That These are two simultaneous verbs expressing a participation in joy and a participation in Greek that coexi- grief that coexists. And actually, this builds on what the prophets teach us about hope. And the prophets are like where hope comes from in the Bible. Like, you want an education on hope, dig into the prophets. And for the prophets, hope represented the certainty of Yahweh's covenant promises in the midst of the improbability and often impossibility of the broken world. That tension was hope. He promised us blessings. He will deliver, even though I can't picture how. See, the reality of the hope that is offered in the gospel is one that is not incompatible with grief. Often it actually gives us space and freedom to name grief, to feel grief. I might actually argue that it deepens grief. I read an article last week um, from a guy in the PCA who I'm, I'm, I don't know him, but I'm like one or two degrees separated from him, so I, I kind of know his story, but he wrote this article um, about losing his wife suddenly and how he was interacting with grief and hope. The article's called Hope is an Ugly Cry. Um, I'd look for it and read it. It's really good. 
But in it, he wrestles um, with what it means to hope in the midst of real grief. This guy who had preached on hope many times and counseled people in grief many times who, when experienced it on this level, suddenly got an education. Here's what he says, uh, part of this. That simple phrase that we grieve with hope can sometimes mean we don't cry or lose our composure in our grief. But I have been fed enough of St. Paul and Jesus himself to know otherwise. Christian hope in the new life ahead does not mean dry eyes and a still face in the here and now. Hope, in fact, has many faces, and one of them is an ugly cry. In time, though the tears left me alone, this is a little later in the article, they receded like water after a flood. They sank into my flesh and bones and returned to their reservoirs. When they came to me, they didn't roll down my cheeks and drop to the floor. They stayed behind the eyes like guests, waiting to be invited across the threshold. Is it okay to come out now? They asked timidly. Yes, I'd have to remind myself. There was no should in grief. There is no right way. There is only what is. Tears and hope can sit at the table together. Like the tears of Jesus, my tears are a sign of my love. See, Peter calls us to this hope that is so much greater than those ethereal hopes that we hang on to. So much greater that it actually allows us to interact with grief. A hope that he says is our inheritance in Jesus Christ. A hope that he calls imperishable, undefilable, and unfading. And he shows us this hope, I think. Okay, hold your chuckles, those of you who know. Uh, in three ways. <laughs> yeah. Um, because he sees it, he sees it. Sorry, I just lost my place laughing at myself. I really lost my place. It was my fault. It. <laughs> <laughs> I might have deleted it. No, no. Um, yeah. I'm, I found it. Did I? Yeah. He sees his hope as something that that can't fade away because it's sourced in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because it's given to us, not earned, as an inheritance, because it, po it points towards the completed work of God in our lives and in this world. So I just want to look at those, hopefully briefly. See, Peter tells us in no uncertain terms where this hope comes from. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This hope that we have is a gift of God's grace that is obtained explicitly through the resurrection of Jesus. 
I mean, just in its clear source, the hope that Peter is offering here is different from our worldly hopes, right? Maybe again to date myself, um, this band uh, from the 2000s has this song called Hold On Hope. And uh, they picture hope as reaching out for a hand that we can't see. It's quite the lyric. That's how we look at hope, right? Don't know what it is. I'm just gonna reach for it. Maybe I don't even dare put a name to it. But here, true hope has a name. Its name is Jesus Christ. It's his resurrection, one of the many, many reasons that the resurrection is critical to our faith because it's critical to our hope. If there is no resurrection, then there is no hope. But there is. And Paul, and Peter, sorry, I'm in Ephesians, so I'm gonna say Paul a lot, and I usually, I'm gonna, most of the time, mean Peter, though not always, what a mess. Peter's language of new birth here, it stems from this wonderful conversation that Jesus has um, in John 3 with this Pharisee named Nicodemus. Um, I really love that interaction. But it's a weird interaction and it leaves Nicodemus just kind of confused because Jesus tells him that no one can see the kingdom of heaven without being born again. And, And I mean, what does that even mean? We have connotations for it now, what it means to be, you know, one of those born-again Christians. But those miss the mark. See, the way that Jesus and then the apostles developed this idea is crucial to our understanding what it means to know Jesus. That our salvation consists of our participation in the death of Jesus on the cross and in the participation of his resurrection from the grave. And that in that participation, we like quite literally become new people. And as these new people, our interactions with everything changes, including grief and joy and hope. And why wouldn't it? When we understand the work of Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, that the Son of God came and lived in the mess with us, suffered and died for our sake, and then actually bodily rose from the grave. That changes everything. We have to see things like grief in a new light. And that new light actually, I don't think, lessens them. The sorrows of this world actually become more sorrowful in that light. And its joys become more joyful. Because in the sorrows, we see more clearly how things are not as they're supposed to be. And we see all the brokenness that Jesus died to redeem. A sorrow that looks like Jesus weeping at the grave of his friends. It looks like him crying out for his father on the cross. And in the joys, we see glimpses of what he was raised to restore. 
a joy that looks like a renewed heaven and earth where all things have been made new. And these deeper griefs and higher joys are seen much more clearly through the lens of our Savior. We can hope in what's accomplished in the resurrection. Peter has this interesting interaction with the prophets in verses 10 through 13 that I thought about leaving out just to make it more simple. Um, But there's actually a lot here contributing right to this idea of this new hope in the resurrection. Peter tells his readers that the prophets were really writing for them because they're searching through these things and and wondering like, like, who are we writing about and who is this for? The prophets who first developed this concept of messianic hope, they didn't see Christ on the cross or rising from the grave. But Peter's audience did. We do. And so we have an even more certain hope than even the prophets did. Because it's based in that resurrection. The next way that Peter presents hope, um, this hope that is radical, is is he presents it as this hope that rests on an imperishable, um, unfading claim. See, our worldly hopes are so fleeting because they are almost always something we have to chase, right? And we've got to get them for ourselves. And what guarantee do we have that we will ever achieve them? Like that big thing that really gets you through the day? Man, if I, get, if I only could get there, what promise do you have that it's going to come? None. You could work your very hardest and never see it. That's the castaway problem, right? It's holding on to this box and he's going to die on that island and come on, man. But Peter tells us that in Jesus we have a sure claim to hope because we're born into it, and in being born into it, it becomes our inheritance. Our inheritance. Because of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, not only are we new people, but we are new people who are adopted as sons and daughters of God. In Ephesians, Paul uses this contrasting language, this contrasting language of the sons of disobedience and the sons of God. Um, and when Paul, Paul uses that language and when he talks about sonship, he's, he's actually talking about this concept in, in the Hellenistic world of, of inheritance. Like it's actually more important in terms of inheritance than it is of, of like family line. Because when someone was made a son of somebody, they became an heir of that person and they inherited all of those blessings that came from that person. And and Paul tells us that we are either inheritors of wrath (laughs) or we're adopted as sons of God and are inheritors of promise. And what's the thing about an inheritance? You don't work for it. You don't earn it. 
It's given to you. And it's certain. It's so certain that here Peter pictures God as like maintaining this inheritance. Right? He says that it's kept for us in heaven. And then actually that we're then kept for it through faith. There's nothing that we can do to lose it. There's nothing we have to do to gain it. But if we know Jesus Christ and and hold to his work, it is ours. Everything. You are heirs of eternal life. You are heirs of his kingdom. And you are heirs here specifically of that hope that we have. Of course we grieve at trials and suffering. Of course we weep at sickness and sadness and sin and death because they have no place in our Father's kingdom. They don't belong here. But we're also free to lament deeply because hope is sitting at the table with us. Finally, Peter Peter presents this um, hope as imperishable and undefiled and unfading, um, particularly because it serves an imperishable, undefiled, and unfading purpose. He tells us that our grief does something. Now, and this is where there's probably some overlap. I'm not going to belabor this point. But we see here, again, something radically different than the hopes of the world because we see God's hand at work even behind sorrow. Now, I want to acknowledge something. I know there's some real, real griefs out there. And if you're sitting here right now in grief, the last thing that you want to hear, and honestly, the last thing that you need to hear is that everything happens for a reason, platitude. That's just not fair, and I'm not offering it to you. Regardless of the theology behind such a statement, it usually does more hurt than good. And I don't know. I don't know what God is doing in your life through what you're experiencing. I probably will never know, and you may never know as well. I've kind of given up in my life trying to, like, read the threads of this tapestry that God is weaving in my life because I just don't see it well. I think we're rarely given that gift. And I'm absolutely not suggesting that your grief needs to be tempered or timed or endured in a particular way because, you know, God's got a plan for you. Rather, what I want to do is affirm I need to affirm the truth behind how suffering functions for the church because that's a real truth. And if you're in a place of grief right now that is too deep to interact with that, that's okay. And you can just ignore me. But we do have promises in Scripture, right here in Peter, in fact, that these things are not wasted. heard this last week? 
Paul really likes to talk about it. Romans 5, he talks about it as well. He says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. There's a promise that is given to us again and again and again that our suffering, our grief, even our failures will be used to produce good things. In fact, back in John again, Jesus talked about the church as these fruitful branches. And then he says something that I always find really hard. He says that God prunes fruitful branches. God prunes fruitful branches. Fun. But we, we need to realize, and, and maybe corporately more than individually, and that might be one of the ways that we, we work together in those places where some of us can't, can't be given platitudes right now. But we need to, to understand that Trials and suffering and grief are often signs of fruits. They're often preparation for more growth. And in the mystery of God's plan, this is what he has for us. I've had the opportunity over the past few days and even longer with with a handful of you Um, to talk a little bit about the hurts and frustrations and griefs of the last few years as a church and individually. And I I know there's some real big ones out there. I don't know what God's doing. But I suspect he's been pruning you for fruit. The fact is I've talked with a lot of you this week. I... I think that fruit is budding on the branch and I think many of you see that. As hard as that is, as painful as it is, that's what hope looks like. Actually, hope requires our grief because it's through our grief that God grows us in our faith. He grows us, he says here, in our love for Jesus Christ who we haven't seen, but actually in our grief we we see him because we share grief with him. And then it says that it grows us in glory and it's a little ambiguous whose glory we're talking about here. But, you know, to go back to Paul, Paul talks about us being in Christ in these really intimate ways and somehow in the economy of what God has done for us, God, Christ's glory becomes our glory. Because it was precisely through the grief and suffering of Christ that he demonstrated his own faithfulness, his own love, and he was crowned in his own glory. And as we join him in grief, we also join him in joy. As we join him in death, we join him in resurrection. I struggled with whether or not to tell this story. Um, I talked with a friend last night. Um, He's sitting right in the grief and joy tension. While I was talking to him, he was helping his um, son pack up. He, 
He's visiting his son at college. His son just graduated. They're packing up his stuff so that he can come home, and not just come home after graduating, but he's coming home and he's getting married. It's exciting. It's really exciting. But I talked to him last night in the midst of everything going on because I heard that his brother-in-law had just passed. Losing a battle to really terrible illness. And he's experiencing tremendous heartache. In the span of a month, my friend will bury his sister's husband and see his own son become a husband. In the span of a month, his son will bury his uncle and be married. Listen, one of these emotions doesn't get to win in their life. They're both there. This family will have to experience the deep grief and the great joy simultaneously. And I'll show my hand here. I have no idea how the world's hope could reconcile those things. They don't. Those things that I hope for in my flesh, those ethereal things, they can't handle that. Like, I wept last night for my friend. I don't know how to do this. Even the joy of it becomes painful. Without the hope of Jesus Christ, it would swallow us up. But I know and they know that Jesus Christ lived and died and was resurrected so that they can have hope. So that they can celebrate and grieve in a way that is deeper. And in fact, I think the joy of the one will likely heighten the sadness of the other. But the sadness of the other will also heighten the joy of the one. Because the same Jesus who attends wedding feasts and is the one who weeps at the tomb of his friends. He died to end death once and for all and he rose to join himself with his love forever. I wanted to thank you all this morning. I don't know if it's appropriate to do in a sermon, but it flows right into this because uh, honestly for me, my time here with you this week has been a gift of hope. Some of you have gotten to talk with me a little bit about some of my own griefs and pains and frustrations over the last few years. And I'll tell you what, it doesn't mean that my wounds have healed. In fact, it's very likely that what I've experienced here will have opened some of them back up a little bit. But the grace that I've experienced gives me hope in the midst of my own hurts. And my prayer for you all, um, and I think what draw, drew me to this passage ultimately, is that you would continue to know his grace and in that you would know the hope that comes with it. That you might rejoice and grieve and grow. And know that in this inheritance that you have, you have the freedom to grieve and you have the freedom to rejoice and you can do those things honestly in a more real, fuller way than, than anyone else can. 
This is your inheritance, inheritance of hope that will never fade until, as the hymn says, hope turns to glad fruition when grief is no more. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for your love. I thank you for your presence in my own heartaches, in those places where I need anything (laughs) to just keep my head up. I pray, Lord, that you would make um, the resurrection that I share with your son more real to me so that I might experience grief and joy well. I pray the same thing for this congregation, that you would teach them the beauty of walking with your son through the grief and joy in their own lives. Hold us until that day that he returns and grief is no more. Pray these things for your glory, for your kingdom, in the name of your son. Amen.